0: The complex problems and challenges and crises our world faces require all of our talents. Women need a seat at that table. So if we can do anything to help women feel like this is worth sticking through uh, and they, they have a girlfriend in their corner, then I, then I think we're succeeding. <laughs>
1: Welcome Jenna Ben Yehuda, she is vice president and managing director of the foreign affairs practice of Wittenberg Weiner Consulting, a woman owned public sector management consulting firm. In this role, she manages a global network of eight diverse teams and supportive clients at the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development. In addition, I know her as the founder of the Women's Foreign Policy Network. And additionally, she teaches at George Washington University. I'm so excited to hear her thoughts on women in diplomacy. Welcome, Jenna.
0: Thank you so much, Kelsey. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
1: So you wear many hats. Tell us about your jobs, your role, and your work in foreign policy sure so my
0: my day job is as you mentioned uh leading the foreign affairs practice of this management consulting firm uh the firm is 10 years old and we're 85 men and women strong uh, in about half a dozen countries at this point point. and so my slice of that is that i manage the foreign affairs work that we do so our teams at state and aid are working on a really wide range of interesting issues from a management consulting perspective. So, helping our clients think about how to change their operations and streamline their efforts to be more effective within this changing global landscape. So, we have helped uh, the Office of the Secretary of State host a fish hackathon, bringing developers together from around the world to create new apps for sustainable fishing. We have worked to help embassies. Throughout the Americas, develop the capacity to issue and monitor grants of a variety of sizes to support economic development, and we do energy work in West Africa and South Asia. So the common thread through all of this is kind of looking at the best way to do these programs and to leverage the really kind of whole of government perspective uh, that we've seen in working across a number of sectors and also the private sector to try to help our clients think thoughtfully about how to bring all of these various sectors together.
1: So can you speak a little bit to the idea of being a consultant? Do you feel there's a difference between being a consultant and working directly at the U.S. State Department? Is there advantages to being a consultant?
0: I think there are definitely differences um, between certainly being a federal employee and working as a consultant. There are a number of uh, of roles and responsibilities that are rightfully inherently governmental within. uh, So certain government functions can and should only be performed by those government employees. So there are limitations, certainly, to the work that consultants can do. So what consultants do is they don't lead uh, efforts for the government, they support those efforts. So the job of a great consultant is to make their client look great, and to help their client achieve the mission objectives. So I think one of, as, as, as young women consider the very really, at this point, just numerous ways in which you know somebody might engage in foreign affairs as a field. the I think the advantage of working and consulting is that it gives you a really unique opportunity to engage with a number of different government clients. So sometimes, as a federal employee, it can be hard to move between agencies. There are great programs to do that, like the Presidential Management Internship Program and others that provide a rotational experience, Uh, but consulting likewise uh, can can do that. So, uh, for example, I have employees who have supported the Office of the Secretary of State on certain initiatives and then transitioned to support the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, Doing that a couple of years out of graduate school Um, can be challenging in other settings, but that flexibility and that that movement uh, is, is really part of the expectation in the world of consulting. So it gives young women and men certainly the opportunity to move around a little bit and to get a sense of which part of this really broad field of international affairs and international security might be most appealing to them. And it also, I think, gives you the experience of being able to draw connections across the interagency and understand in a pretty unique way, you know, what each agency culture is, what lessons you can draw from each of them, how you can leverage best practices from state to bring into a DOD context and vice versa. So it can be a great way for people at the beginning of their careers to, um, get a, get a feel for what the work of the interagency is and to kind of pop in and out on a project basis and discover a little bit about, you know, just to reflect upon what might be a, a good fit for them longer term. Uh, so if folks like that, uh, kind of, you know, the opportunity to do something new, um, a lot of our employees, move around every couple of years or even every six months. Um, So it gives you the opportunity to see a new office setting, um, whereas to do that within the context of being a federal employee can have its limitations because you would have to, in many cases, apply for an entirely new position and go through that process, which can be very lengthy. So there are certainly um, benefits on both sides. I began my career Uh, as a federal civil servant and spent 12 years doing a lot of really interesting things in that capacity. Um, So having seen both sides of it, I think there are certainly advantages to both. But um, I think one of the unique features of consulting is the ability to, to see a number of different client environments and really just think expansively about the way that various agencies interact with each other.
1: This is so encouraging. Thank you for breaking this down for us because I think the term consultant sometimes can be confusing, especially to a newcomer on the international sure. relations scene. But overall, well, I it sounds- think sometimes
0: it feels it's, it feels a little vague. It feels excessively vague. Um, all that mm-hmm. means is to support. So there are consultants that do IT consulting that help with systems and networks. What it, What you're really talking about is an external player, uh, not from government, supporting a client. So we are a private company, and our clients are public sector or government clients. So it's the private sector supporting the work of the public sector. And, And it could be an advisory basis, which is temporary, Uh, or, you know, kind of short in duration. It could be over a period of 10 years uh, with one client. Our firm has supported the Navy in Italy for over 10 years. So the nature of those engagements can change, um, but I think kind of the general nature um, of that support, you know, can be relatively consistent. If you hear the term management consulting, this typically has to do with the way that the organization operates, how the organization is managed. So it can deal with HR practices and increasing diversity uh, in an organization. It can deal with, uh, you know, the rapidity with which visas are adjudicated and issued and looking for ways to identify additional efficiencies. So there can be a kind of capital O operational focus, or it can, uh, you know, deal with the kind of what we term the performance management cycle, looking at the connection between your budget in the formulation stage. And it's tied to the strategic plan and program execution so that a virtuous cycle of planning and resourcing is tied and looped together and that there's an outcome-driven evaluative context to all of that so that you can make data-driven decisions about what really works within your organizational context and what could need tweaking. So when we talk about management consulting, we're talking about an approach that focuses on the kind of operational undercurrent uh, of strategy and planning and resourcing and how those elements unite.
1: And is this what you are helping your clients do, but then also, in addition, helping them understand the foreign affairs aspect of of business development?
0: Right. So my clients are foreign affairs agencies. Um, State Department is the lead foreign affairs agencies, but there are a number of additional agencies that now have a foreign affairs component to them, from Commerce to USDA, from Department of Homeland Security and on. So, what I do is to support a lot of those same uh, efforts that our firm supports DoD with, or or in other agency contexts, but within a foreign affairs context. So, if we're looking at strategy and budget execution and strategic planning, the Department of Defense has a very different budget cycle that actually doesn't even align on a calendar basis to State Department budgeting. We could have a whole other conversation about the challenges that that creates. Um, <laughs> and so the planning and budgeting processes are very different, but the kind of fundamental concepts of understanding what the overall objective is, how you drive towards that mission, what those key indicators are, how do you really know you're being successful that is agency agnostic. Regardless of whether you're in government or private sector, when you're aligning resources to a policy or to a desired outcome, you want to ensure that it's the right fit for your organization, that it meets various needs. And then the organizational context that overlays all of that will determine where that right fit is. So we're, we're helping our clients to seek that alignment. So in my role, uh, I do work directly with clients I do a number of, uh, I serve a number of advisory functions. I might um, look at a speech and offer some tweaks um, that I think might make remarks more resonant with a particular audience. Uh, I might be kind of the final uh, pen on a document that my employees put together to just give it, uh, you know, a fresh set of eyes before we submit something to a client. I do a lot of management. I have a, a number of teams and people that I manage. Um, And also, so there's there's certainly the management piece of uh, dealing with our teams and and overseeing our teams. There's also the client engagement piece, working directly with clients to support them. And then there is also the business development piece. So that means uh, certainly a big part of my responsibility is to help ensure that we have a continuous stream of clients because the work that we do by its very nature should not be permanent. Uh, It is short in duration. Our job is to get in, help our clients solve a a problem and then move on and get out of their way. Um, We are, our firm's philosophy is to support good government and have you know, help government to put its best foot forward and then get out of the way. So um, there are a number of different models in the consulting world. Um, Ours is really to provide that strategic analytic support and then transition work back to our clients. So if I don't continue to develop a client base, uh, you know, you have to grow or you die, right? So these things are not forever. So we're always looking for ways to partner with other firms. Uh, large and small, to identify new opportunities to support our clients.
1: Wow. Amazingly dynamic. I definitely can hear some young women out there perking up because they're looking for excitement and they're looking to learn a lot. Um, And consulting sounds very dynamic.
0: It it really can be. I definitely think uh, consulting is, uh, you know, if you like to wake up every day and know, This is going to be my schedule. Here's what's going to be on my plate. This is what I have to do this week. Um, Consulting is not the field for you. (laughs) This is a career field that that rewards and expects flexibility and dynamism and a lot of energy. And, uh, you know, I can also say as a hiring manager, I look for uh, certainly attitude um, every bit, if not more, than I look for ability. I can teach somebody how to uh, develop a strategic plan um, that is in alignment with the foreign assistance frameworks at the State Department, for example. I can't really teach somebody how to be uh, a good listener or receptive and uh, or how to be emotionally intelligent about that. So when I hire I look for men and women who have a flexibility and openness, who can write well. This is so, so important. We always look for strong writers and good briefers, people who can synthesize a lot of information quickly and then deliver that in an articulate fashion and succinctly. So I would say to your, to your listeners, uh, being a strong writer and a strong briefer is rewarded across sectors within the foreign affairs community Uh, but especially because you have to think about in, in consulting your nature the nature of the work is in is that of support you're in a supporting role so if you think of yourself as a supporting actress your role is not to upstage the star of the show the star of the show is your client so sometimes that can be challenging. Folks really want to get credit for their work. They want to get the award. They want the recognition. Um, in a lot of ways, we're kind of the we're the stagehands, the men in black, <laughs> the men and women in black kind of, uh, you know, helping to make things go off without a hitch. So, um, you know, sometimes, I, you know, I've seen employees kind of bristle. Ultimately, they want to be the ones out there getting the credit or, you know, out in front. And that's just not the nature of what we do. We need to put our clients out in front and, and to elevate them. So understanding kind of that mix requires, I think, a lot of uh, self-awareness and, um, you know, and, and sometimes that, that blend can be hard to find. So, um, but it's a lot of fun. The nature of the work changes all of the time, um, the ability to see different kinds of clients in different settings, um, I think can be really helpful because increasingly in this field, uh, you know, the worlds of defense and diplomacy and development are coming closer and closer together and so often overlapping and interacting with one another in more complex and diverse ways than ever before. And so within our foreign affairs practice, I think you know, certainly as we grow, we have more and more opportunities to provide our employees with the experience of operating in all of those sectors. And so that when they go to USAID, they can bring with them the benefit of experience of having seen how certain, uh, you know, operations are undertaken at the Defense Department, at State Department, so that those cultures don't seem So disparate and foreign, because a lot, each of these organizations really do have their own language and their own acronyms, their own budgeting processes. And so coming together in an interagency context, even though it happens more and more, can often feel um, challenging or frustrating and people don't understand what the priorities of the other agency are because they differ or seemingly differ from their own. So You know, regardless of whether people go into consulting or foreign service or civil service or otherwise, I think there is just tremendous benefit to our country to identify more and more ways for people to spend time throughout the course of their career crossing agencies um, so that that perspective becomes more shared.
1: It is a very exciting time to be involved in international affairs and i love that you spoke a little bit about the the networks that are happening and the importance of you know cross organizing and and cross agency collaboration so then can you tell us about the women's foreign policy network what's the story there how did it get started and uh tell us a little bit about your mission sure
0: so the Women's Foreign Policy Network was started two years ago. This was the result of uh, a dinner that I hosted with about 15 friends, um, very few of whom actually knew each other. These were um, women who were on my kind of rock star list of, uh, of superstars. And I just, I really wanted nothing more than for all of these really incredible women to know each other. So the purpose of this dinner was to really just come together and connect women across agencies and disciplines because uh, oftentimes you know people from different agencies only run into each other at an interagency meeting uh you know which can sometimes be unfriendly territory right so i just really wanted to bring some of these fantastic women together we had a great dinner uh in dc we talked for over i think two and a half three hours and at the end of the meeting, uh, a lot of women said, great, so now what? Uh, and I thought, well, I don't know. <laughs> I thought this was, I thought this was the thing. And they said, this is not the thing. Um, and so we kind of put heads together and, and thought, I, I'm an avid Facebook user. I follow embassies and NATO and OECD and a ton of friends. And it's just, I, I spend a lot of my online digital life using Facebook as a tool. So I thought, let's give this a go. So, I set it up as a closed group, which means that it is searchable, uh, but that you have to request uh, approval to be a part of the group. And so we started this group. It was the 15 of us and uh, the permissions were set such that each of those women could invite friends of theirs. Um, And then it just kind of grew by word of mouth and, uh, Two years later, we have over 1,100 members. Um, and so this, these are now friends of friends of friends of friends, uh, though increasingly we have women who have found us from uh, OECD and UNDP and all around Europe. A number of women um, supporting World Bank efforts in Asia and in Africa have also joined the network. So I'm really proud of the organic way in which we've grown, um, because we really have sought to be a network. Um, so it is a closed Facebook group for women in the national security community. And our, our mission really is to connect, engage, share ideas and network. So we do that by holding a series of events. We've had 18 events since our founding with a number of senior women, uh, Throughout the interagency and business community and development world, we've held workshops on how women can be more effective communicators, how to manage during a presidential transition. Uh, So we've covered really a wide range uh, of topics from pure policy discussions to leadership and management issues, and also this kind of perennial uh, conversation about work-life balance and what we all want from the experience of work. But at its core, it's a network. And this means that uh, it's a place for women to help women. And I can give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, We have had women reach out to each other to say, hey, uh, I'm interviewing for a job at this organization. Does anybody know anybody there? I'd really love to put my best foot forward. And then a couple of women will comment and type up and say, sure, message me. I can introduce you to so-and-so or somebody else says, I just interviewed there. Here's what I was asked. So this is really practical, useful, meaningful advice uh, and support from a community of women in the same field. Um, So we've seen, you know, a wide range of, of ways in which these women have supported each other and um, it is a totally uh you know, a political nonpartisan space. We have Republicans and Democrats and, and everything in between. Um we have been very, I think, diligent uh in uh reminding our members that it's not a space certainly as we you know head into the election or Um, political fundraising and things of that nature. So, you know, the bottom line being that we want to ensure that it feels like a welcoming space um, for women across the political spectrum um, who operate in this space.
1: And I have to say that I personally have felt very welcome, very supported as I have joined the Women's Foreign Policy Network. You have been a staunch supporter of the Foreign Policy Project and especially the Women in Diplomacy podcast. Um, And I'm so grateful for this network that you created.
0: Well, thanks. No, it's, I mean, really it has, it started, I, I have to say the first 300 or so members. I knew they were friends of friends and uh, part of kind of my cohort. Um, but part of the enormously enjoyable and gratifying experience of seeing this grow have been the diversity of voices and just learning more about all of the really interesting things that people are working on. So I love what you're doing, Kelsey. And I think there is now's is a great time to be a woman in this field. There is so much energy and so much thoughtfulness about, how to bring women's voices um, into this conversation uh, and to ensure that we can help devise career paths that are meaningful and sustainable um, for women. Because I, I firmly believe that the, the complex uh, problems uh, and challenges and crises our world faces require all of our talents. Uh, and women need a seat at that table. So if we can do anything to help women feel like this is worth sticking through uh, and they they have a girlfriend in their corner, um, then I I think we're succeeding. Encourage your listeners to check us out. We're on Facebook. You can search us, Women's Foreign Policy Network, um, and just click join, and, and you'll be hearing from me.
1: Fantastic. Okay. So let's get into the, the third hat that you wear. So you also teach at GW. You work with the students of Washington, D.C.
0: So I'm an adjunct. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor at the George Washington University Elliott School of International Affairs.
1: How is that as an experience, especially being a, you know, professional in the real world and then bringing that experience into the classroom?
0: So I have to say, first of all, that I came to Washington, gosh, uh, so many years ago. I'm, I've lost count. I think 18 years ago this fall, as an undergraduate at GW. So for me, being asked to come back and teach in their graduate school um, is extra gratifying because I feel like I've come full circle uh, because I came to Washington from Southern California. Uh, with an old Dave Matthews Band T-shirt and Birkenstocks and jeans, and uh, many years later, I get to turn around and be with these great students. So it's been um, just a tremendous honor. I teach a graduate seminar in the spring semester called Security in the Americas, that is really an overview of the security environment in the region. So we take a very comprehensive view of security. So we talk about everything from international organized crime and transnational criminal organizations and gangs. We talk about the role that climate change plays and the security, certainly, of small island nations. We talk a lot about gender and domestic violence. Latin America is home to some of the highest rates of domestic violence in the world. And we talk about how a persistent climate of violence in a number of these countries can contribute to attitudes about democracy and institutional stability. So um, it's offered every spring. It's been uh, a tremendous learning experience for me. It's a course I designed um, and I've I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's great for me to, to connect to students who were just starting their journey into this field and kind of soak up their enthusiasm and optimism um, about the work that all of us are trying to do.
1: So one of my regular questions on the Women in Diplomacy podcast is – especially for our student listeners, what would you advise them that are topics in international relations that you feel need more research or help in this moment in time? Because I want to encourage our listeners to stop writing the cookie cutter papers and to stop using case studies that have been used over and over again in our diplomacy textbooks. So I'm curious your Answer to that, but then also, just since you are in such close contact with students every year, any advice that you have for making the most of your academic experience?
0: Sure. So, let me start with the research um, question that you asked about. Um, There's so much happening in this field now. This is a field that is that. That changes every single day and deepens in really complex and interesting ways. So, um, there's so much really that anybody could sink their teeth into. Um, there is a, a new initiative by the State Department um, that folks might be interested in. Um, and, full disclosure, this was an effort that my firm helped to launch. Uh, it's called Diplomacy Lab, and you can find out about it on diplomacylab.org. It is a way for the State Department to course source, kind of like crowdsource research and innovation related to foreign policy by harnessing the efforts of students and faculty at universities across the country. So, for those students out there, uh, I would say you know check to see if your university is a part of, excuse me, is a part of the Diplomacy Lab partnership, uh, because what this really gives you the opportunity to do is respond to research questions posed by State Department officials about questions they want additional research support on um, and really have your work read and used by officials in the Department of State. So I think that's pretty cool. I think it's pretty exciting to have this dynamic link between the academic community and the policy community. So it's a relatively new effort. There are a number of university partners all across the country. Uh, I would really encourage your listeners to take uh, a look at DiplomacyLab.org and see if their university is a participant or to contact to see if their university could get involved. Um, So that's one great new initiative that ties uh, universities to the real live current work of the department that helps. Them ensure that the work that they are producing is relevant, um, and and so I, I would really encourage folks to take a look at that. From my perspective, um, I I'm kind of an organizational junkie, and what I mean by that is that I, I I'm really interested in how, uh, and how bureaucracies are designed, how bureaus are segmented and created, how offices interact, and I firmly believe that the structures of our organizations are seriously outdated. Uh, Most of our national security apparatus remains unchanged from the passage of the National Security Act in 1947. Since then, so much has happened, not least of which is the information revolution, and certainly the threat environment has changed. And There is this increased transnational nature to a number of the threats that we face, whether it's International organized crime, drug trafficking, cyber, all of these threats are perpetrated by individuals and networks who have zero interest in borders. And so what we have are organizations who, who's, whose objectives uh, really go past borders uh, and so, or, or move very quickly physically across very porous borders. And yet, we have organizations uh, like the State Department, like parts of the intelligence community, though certainly there have been modernizations there, that are largely structured in the same way. This creates a misalignment. So we have on the threat side, to my mind, a very networked world. And on the organizational side within the U.S. national security apparatus, what I would consider to be a very hierarchical world—that is a disconnect. It makes it really hard for uh, folks at the Department of State to uh, monitor organized crime, uh, which, you know, is agnostic, you know, border agnostic, uh, organizationally agnostic. Um, when they have to move through so many organizational hoops to get those ideas forward. It can be hard for agencies to talk to each other. So I think what that really means is that the structures of government need to change. I think we need to identify ways to infuse our government with agility and organizational models that favor innovation and creativity so that we can match the threat environment that we face. So I would love to see uh, students noodle on that problem because it really, it undergirds so much of the work that is done. And otherwise, I think we end up playing kind of whack-a-mole, you know, chasing, uh, chasing the next threat as we amble so slowly um, through this organizational and budgetary environment, which is very constraining and very slow when the threat environment is very fast.
1: That is an excellent call to action. Thank you. So
0: send it forward. I want to see it. Yes, I love it, (laughs) everyone.
1: Right into Professor Ben Yehuda. (laughs) There you go. Well, I mean, the other thing I would add to
0: this is that, you know, the other piece is that I think we need to think thoughtfully about how the nature of work has also changed. Millennials are not going to be spending their entire careers within a single office or a single organization as their parents or grandparents might have done. I think we need to make it easier for people to move around government uh, so that employees feel like they're consistently being challenged and seeing new things and so that we derive the benefits of that different experience and that cultural exposure to other processes and other agencies. You know, I think the other added piece to this is that, Um, As there are more and more women serving in these positions, we need to make it easier for women to be women and uh, to have children and stay engaged and feel supported. And I think there's a lot of work to be done within these organizations to make it uh, an area that is not just welcoming or supportive, um, but truly a champion for working women and mothers.
1: I, I wholeheartedly agree, Jenna. Let's go back to your own beginnings as a female, deciding that you wanted to go into this realm of career. When you were growing up, was there any particular experience that let you know that this career was going to be a good fit? What What made you go into international relations?
0: So I'll say a couple of things. Um, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. And so I grew up um, from a very young age having an understanding of the world beyond our borders. And he was born in Austria and made his way during the war to the United States. Um, and so I was always very cognizant of uh, of of that generation of my family having come from other countries and having done so um, both as a product of conflict, but also in uh, very lucky circumstances, in the case of my grandfather who made it here, um, because of the policies that were set in place um, to bring folks here. Um, so, and then certainly other members of my family who were lost because of those, the limitations of those same policies. So um, growing up as a, a Jewish kid in this country who whose family had been very personally touched by the Holocaust, that was certainly always on my radar. Um, but I will say there were a couple of, of moments for me that I think were truly transformational, um, one of which was at the age of 16, uh, I was able to go overseas uh, as an exchange student with a teacher of mine uh, who was on a Fulbright, and she brought about a dozen of us to Hungary. And we all lived with a host family. I was paired with a host sister Uh, and spent a number of weeks there traveling widely and learning about Hungary. It was my first time uh, being overseas at all. And it was my first time living certainly with a family that did not speak English. Now, Hungarian is one of the hardest languages in the world. It's much more like Finnish than anything else. And uh, so my family spoke no English, but they did speak Spanish. And as a kid growing up in Southern California, I had taken Spanish since I was 11 years old. So our common language in Budapest, many miles away from my own family, living with this family I had never met before, was Spanish. And to me, this was hugely eye-opening that language really is this incredible tool for connection um, and understanding. And I appreciated that not just in an academic sense, as I had tried to as a student, but really living that and, and feeling truly understood, and it bridged um, a gap between us. So um, I am a fervent supporter of, uh, of women in this field having a language. Um, the language is important not just for what it means for your ability to communicate, but because of what the act of teaching, you know, learning a language teaches you about your own language and about the discomfort of, of newness. So um, I would say living overseas as a teenager, um, even for a limited amount of time, having that language exposure um, was really huge for me. So I came to GW um, pre-Facebook and Twitter and <laughs> wide use of the internet and have a cell phone. Uh, Flew across the country, didn't know a soul. Landed in Washington. Knew I wanted to be in Washington, and um, through a program that GW had at the time with the State Department, um, applied and was offered a position and started working full time at the State Department when I was 20 years old. I was still living in the dorm, um, but I took a semester off and some AP credits, and uh, and I worked at State full time for nine months. Went back to school my senior year. Continued on half time 20 hours a week in another role and then two weeks after I graduated I began my full time civil service career started as a GS4 which will mean something to some of your listeners it was a super super low level role um and I got my letter it was said something like congratulations you've been offered a GS4 position and you will be paid $18,000 a year <laughs> oh. And I got that letter, and I remember thinking, yes, this is the (laughs) most money ever. (laughs) And I was so excited. Of course. And, yeah, I started in an office working on uh, several hundred cases of international parental child abduction, feeling completely underwater, um and totally overwhelmed and uh and slowly uh but surely started finding my way and and worked up from there.
1: So what career advice would you give to young women that are interested in following in your footsteps especially if they themselves find themselves in in that position currently where they're underwater or overwhelmed by by the topic or the region that they're working on.
0: Yeah, so I I think a couple of things. Um you know, for folks who are interested in, in federal service, um, you know, you've got to get in the door. So, I would say don't don't wait for the perfect role. If you have an opportunity to get into the organization, take it. Uh, you know, negotiate the salary to the extent you can. Try to get uh, a higher position if you can. You certainly always, you know, you cut your best deal before you walk into the door. Um, but just getting into the door is important. So I think a lot of times, um, folks feel like they have to find that dream job right out of the gate. And if you set that standard for yourself, I think you'll consistently be disappointed. And so early in your career, uh, you know, you want to cast a wide net. You want to really see what is going to appeal to you. And it's always better to have more options. Uh, than not. So uh, I would say, you know, get out there, get your hands dirty, network, uh, really dig into stuff and do your homework. So in that job search process, um, you know, you really want to be careful to tailor your resume and cover letter to the organization and to the position. I get a lot of resumes and cover letters that were clearly written for somebody else. Um, and that stuff does not go unnoticed. So doing your homework um, is a big part of it. You know, if you're in Washington, there's a great way to reverse engineer a job search. You know, if you're looking for a position at a think tank, for example, you know, go online. These organizations have events all the time. You know, show up, listen to the presentations, develop your vocabulary around these issues that you're interested in, and sit in the front row and take notes and approach the speakers afterwards and introduce yourself. Even though we have all of these tools virtually uh, and online, there is no substitute still um, for FaceTime and for relationships. So even if you feel like you don't know a soul in Washington or New York or San Francisco or wherever you are, push to integrate yourself, push to get yourself out there. If you're an introvert, you just commit to whatever you think you can manage And, you know, set a goal for yourself. I'm going to go to one event every two weeks and I'm not going to leave until I talk to two people. And then you talk to two people and you have permission to leave. Um, But know what you're going in for. Know what you want. Get out there. Work your network. Join the Women's Foreign Policy Network or other groups like Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. There are many out there um, to really Start to understand this space because I think when you're coming right out of school, you have an academic context, it doesn't often give you a really good feel for the architecture of Washington and the intersection between the Pentagon and the Hill and State Department and think tanks and academia and trade associations. So being here, I think, helps with that. Your network can help with that. There's no substitute for doing your homework. Um, and really digging in and demonstrating your passion. So I'm going to contradict myself a little bit here. I'm a big believer in just getting your foot in the door and not waiting for the perfect opportunity. But at some point, you know, a few years into your career, you're going to come to a fork in the road. And uh, you're, you're going to have to make a decision potentially about, you know, following you know one issue or the other and that i think is an opportunity where you know you really you want to do work that matters to you um you know there's a reality of needing to pay bills (laughs) and i personally think you should never work for free uh washington runs on free labor uh, but there are paid roles and i would really encourage folks to find those roles and um and pursue them. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to be doing work that matters for you. Um, that needs to be a driver. At the same time, give yourself space to fall in love with a different issue. I wouldn't say, I'm only going to take a job if it focuses on basket weaving in Uganda. You know, maybe there's basket weaving uh, in, you know, parts of Thailand that might be of interest to you. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can, you need to think creatively and expansively, you need to face your own kind of financial reality and all of that. Um, But you got to care about it. Um, You know, life's too short not to, uh, to be engaged. And I think this is a field that rewards those who pursue their passions if they're doing so, um, you know, with through a lot of hard work. um, and, And with heart, I think that that heart and that intention does show and really does come through.
1: Is there anything else you want to put out there and leave on the table?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, the only other thing I would say, um, you know, there's some debate as, you know, as women are often asked this question about work-life balance and some people um, bristle at that because they feel um, understandably like that is a question asked disproportionately of women uh, and not of men for whom it should be more of a topic of conversation. Um, I'm of both minds on that issue. Um, I think women should be asked the hard questions, but I also think it's important for women to kind of lift the veil a little bit on, on how this actually works Um, and so I, I am the mother of three, uh, children and, um, who were early into their elementary school. Um, and so I guess, you know, the one thing, uh, that I, that I would say about that is that, um, you know, I, have talked to students who've come up to me and said, you know, I want to do, uh, international security. I really want to go work for NATO, but I also want to have a family, Um, And, you know, Cheryl Sandberg in her in her book, Leanne, um, says a lot of things, some of which I disagree with. But one of the things that really resonated with me is that she says, don't leave until you leave. Um, And by that, she means, you know, invest and push and work towards what it is that you want. And then at some point, if you determine that that's not a good fit for you, then you can identify an alternative. For those women out there who think that having a family is incompatible with working in this field, I'm here to tell you that it's not true. And I think it's a better time than ever. But I will say that, you know, if you do have a baby, you know, you are much more likely to come back if you're coming back to something that you care about uh, and something that really motivates you. So that is a vote for not taking the boring jobs, not taking the stuff you think um, will be good for your family life, because that is not going to push you along and continue to drive you forward. You gotta do what you love and you gotta deal with this stuff as it comes up um, and and get help and, and seek support and build your community uh, around you to support you. But I, I do I just I wanted to make mention of that. Um, That, uh, yes, this is a field that can involve uh, travel and austere places. Yes, this is a field that often demands long hours, um, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, And you can do those uh, tough roles for a number of years and then transition into something that provides you the flexibility you may want or need at some point. So don't leave until you leave. Jump in with both feet and give it all you got. Such a great advice, oh my goodness Oh, uh, well it's my pleasure i you know i i really I think the stuff is really important I think it can feel really isolating you know a lot of these jobs um you know i I spent the better part of a decade uh where I was often the only woman in the room um and that can uh you know lead people to you know wade into waters of self doubt and that's why uh, I founded the network and I mean, that's why I really try to support women because we need creative solutions to these problems. The world is not getting any simpler uh, and so we really need to create environments that support women and men from all backgrounds, from all walks of life. We need to move away from uh you know this notion that the State Department is a priesthood um, for the, you know, the saying goes, pale male in Yale. Uh, we need the our systems of government and organizations and nonprofits to reflect the diversity of our country if we're going to get this stuff right.